As an enterprise, effective communication with employees, customers, and vendors is vital for company growth. Now, with Studio, there's a powerful solution for business communication, podcasts. Studio will host, manage, and distribute private podcasts for your business and provide the support and resources needed to launch and maintain them successfully. It's no wonder that companies like Salesforce, Nike, and Facebook trust Studio to power their private podcasts. Request a free, personalized demo today at the letter ustudio.com. Be sure to mention you heard about it on Equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechWrench's venture capital-focused podcast, where we, as always, unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Alex Wilhelm, and once again, I have Danny Crichton with me. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. That is... That's enthusiasm. You are back in New York. I'm in Providence. And uh, I have to say, I've had enough of this shit. I want some summer. Um, but the good news is, despite the terrible weather and the time of the year, there is a bajillion things to get to. So I'm going to skip the usual faffing about and jump right in. And we're going to start the show with Front, which I need you to explain to me why this particular funding round was such a big deal. We're actually going to kick off the entire show with it. So start with why the hell do we care? Yeah, so uh, Front raised $59 million in a Series C. And um, here, here's the deal. They didn't have a lead. They had no lead investor. No, no lead VC. We got no Vision Fund. No, no Sequoia, although Sequoia did the Series B. Um, they actually led with a couple of really prominent B2B CEO and founders. So Atlassian co-CEO and founder Mike Cannon-Brooks, Okta CEO and co-founder Frederick Harest, uh, mm-hmm. Baltrix co-founder and CEO Ryan Smith, Zoom CEO Eric Yuen. So what's interesting here is is we're getting to these late-stage growth rounds at a time when there's more growth money than ever. And Front basically said, nah, we're good. We're just going to take from really prominent angels who all have had exited, you know, kind of uh, startups. And so what, what's interesting here is twofold. One is, one, the dynamic in the VC industry, which we can talk about more. But two is actually kind of the strategy here of Front is a B2B product selling to other kind of B2B startups. And so by taking this money from other kind of B2B sales-centered uh, startup founders and CEOs, um, they're really kind of like buying from their own customers, so to speak, right? Like, there's a synchronicity that's connecting the two together. So the $59 million round had no lead VC. There was no like, you know, Kleiner coming in here writing a big check. I'm curious though, do you think that the VCs that previously invested got pro rata in this round? Or do you think it was actually all just money from these, I guess, executives turned angels? I think they definitely got pro rata. I mean, I, I don't think it was in the press release that they did, but I, I'm sure they did. I'm also not entirely clear that these folks took the entire round. I mean, there could have been a 20 or $25 million slug from a round that was unannounced. Yeah. From a funding from a f- firm that was unannounced, um, but nonetheless, like the fact that it was positioned this way, um, you know, if you imagine ten years ago, this sort of round, first of all, wouldn't exist. But this would sort of exist. round where we would said, oh, a bunch of angels came in late stage, you'd be like, well, this company must be doing terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. No VC was willing to lead the round. Things have changed so much that a founder can literally say, God, we got a couple of individuals around at the party at the craps table. They put in fifty nine million bucks, and we're going, yep. wow, unbelievable. They said no to everyone. Uh, it's, it's just uh, an amazing change in time. It is, but also I'm kind of embarrassed by the number of people I know on this list. Like, I know Frederick a little bit. I know Ryan a little bit. I know Eric a little bit. I think I've met Jay. Like, I mean, I think I need to change industry, industries because it's like the same eight people keep coming up and like, that's embarrassing to me. I need, I need new friends. Um, let's talk about what the company does. Front is a B2B messaging kind of comms thing. It looks like email, but it works for teams. Um, I'm presuming, Danny, this is kind of a product aimed at customer support, customer success kind of groups. Yeah, so Front, Front's um, innovation was really, you know, for a lot of top companies, they have an email like support at 
techcrunch.com or press sure. at google.com, which is actually how we reach out to Google, right? Mm -hmm. And so when that goes into uh, press at google.com, um, that actually gets centered and moved around the, uh, the thousands of PR people who are in Google um, to figure out how to respond to it. So um, if it's coming from an at TechCrunch email address, like from us, it goes to our TechCrunch contact. If it goes to APAC Asia Pacific, it'll go to someone who's live overnight overseas. And so basically thousands of people are accessing the same email inbox. And so if you've ever tried to do your own inbox with Gmail, you know it's basically impossible with one goddamn person on the inbox. Now you add in hundreds of people, all of whom you know are, are interacting with the same emails, et cetera. And suddenly it's just a complete mess. Front took that and said, hey, what if we built inbox from scratch, assuming exactly. that there are thousands of people or hundreds of people reading the same tickets, reading the same emails, and how can we respond to it really, really effectively? Huge problem. Tons of companies have it. Um, they've been super successful. It's only a couple of years old. And what's interesting is actually that the founders are French. Um, it actually has a large Parisian office. Um, one founder, uh, Laurent, uh, had a decade in enterprise. And then Mathilde, who's also a female B2B founder, a rare breed, unfortunately, in the industry, um, who's CEO. Um, and she, she kind of came out of her master's degree in 2012 and dived into this uh, in front. So it's a five-year-old company, um, raised now 138, almost 140 million bucks. An insane amount of money. And the, the speed with which they've raised capital is crazy because their Series A of 10 million was back in May of 2016, then bam, 66 million in early 18, and then two years later, another 59 million. So really, it's, it's pretty front-loaded or back-loaded, I'm sorry, to kind of where we are in time now. So I'm curious to see how much more capital they'll need to scale this to IPO size or if it already is kind of there. But certainly, a lot of star power, uh, a lot of potential customers on this uh, new investment. And I'm kind of curious if this is a trend that we'll see, kind of a flex from companies that we're so hot, we don't even need venture capital. All the real stars of our industry want to put money in. Um, it's certainly a new way to approach it. Absolutely. And I think one of the, the key lessons here, at least for me, was Front is a company that really figured out product market fit super early on. Um, you know, if you look at it, it was founded um, five years ago. It took two years kind of to build out. So Uncork Capital is sort of a firm that argues that it focuses on product market fit. Mm -hmm. So they raised 3.1 million seed in October 2014. And then once they sort of got this product market fit, and it's sort of obvious today, but looking back in time, the idea that there would be the SaaS product to fix this sort of team-oriented email inbox was, was sort of not a concept. Um, now it's just scaling, right? It's all sales scaling. Um, and so we're seeing the rounds get faster and faster because they're repeated, you know, the, the sales are repeating. Um, I'm assuming the growth is repeating internally. The numbers look great. It's sort of a classic SaaS business. Um, I expect us to see us on a 100 million ARR club as you call it, uh, hopefully in the next year or two, that there hasn't been an announcement around their revenues, but I, I expect it to come soon here. Yeah, that feels about right. If they're doubling or two and a half xing year over year, it adds up pretty quickly. They're probably, I don't know, just guessing here, 20, 30 million error somewhere in there, and they'll be larger soon enough. Um, let's talk about the venture capital world through a different lens, though. You have been looking at how really large funds are cutting smaller and smaller checks. We're talking about funds that have billions in AUM or asset center management writing five, seven million dollar checks, which seems to make no sense according to the old model of larger funds put larger checks to work, so otherwise they can't really disperse the capital. But that's changing. And um, I, I want you to tell people why that's changing, because it's a fascinating kind of like nuance about today's venture capital market. Absolutely. So Front is a great example of this, right? So here's a $59 million check that no growth stage investor who has a billion dollars ready to deploy was able to invest it. And so we're seeing once again, um, the largest funds, you know, they're billions of dollars. We had, uh, we talked about it last week's show. I think we had what, 21 fundraises that were over 500 million last year. It was 19 to 21, somewhere in that kind of category. Um, so a ton of money deployed. And so the idea that you would do early stage investments is, is nuts because you can't deploy a million dollars a thousand times in a year. 
And so the challenge is, is like, but well, why are people doing this? And so when I started asking VCs, the answer was, well, once the cap tables in the Series B and D are out there, um, they're locked in. You know, Sequoia's already in the A, Benchmark's already in the A, Founders Fund's in the A, um, and they have the capital to deploy in the B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way through the Sesame Street alphabet, um, all the way through. And so by the time you get to the D, you have no access. Or in the case of Front, no one had access, apparently. <laughs> uh, At the Series C level so, at that so, point, yeah. So like, basically, you have to lock in earlier and earlier. And so even if you're the SoftBank Vision Fund and you want to throw $400 million in the Series D, you have to be in the seed or the Series A to start to lock in that pro rata, to start ro- locking in those early ownership rights. Um, it just gives you more ball control later on because other people are going to kind of knock you out of the way to get their round in place. And so there's sort of this paradox where we're seeing you know, the, the largest, latest stage funds doing the smallest early stage rounds. And so that, that was a really interesting dynamic that we haven't seen before. Yeah. And like one thing to keep in mind is that when I was learning about the VC world, uh, you know, maybe a decade ago now, I was always told that if you couldn't find a new lead investor for the proximate round, the next one, it was a very bad signal because it would imply that no one else in the market wanted to lead your Series C if you already raised a B. And having your preceding investors that were leads lead your next round was a very bad thing. Now it's entirely flipped on its head because capital is sufficiently unscarce. It's so ample. So, so much of it's flowing around that people want to stay in a company. They want to preempt that next round. They want to lead the B and then the C and then the D to get as much of their capital to work as they can on a winner to ensure that they can return enough capital to make their large fund look attractive enough to raise a second one. So it's a facet of there being too much money in the market. It's certainly a change compared to how things used to work. It's actually an inversion, but it just goes to show how in 2020, the way the venture world works certainly is, at least in my experience, new. Uh, maybe it was like this back in the late 90s or something, but certainly it feels like a new chapter. Um, and I presume we'll get back to what used to be normal when there's less capital around, but I don't see that happening for the next 18, 24, 36 months. So this, this is the way it's going to be, Danny, I presume, for the next while. Oh, absolutely, Alex. And I, look, I, I think one of the lessons I learned talking to a couple of particularly hustler VCs. <laughs> wait, wait, what does that mean? I want... uh, let's, 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 call, let's start reverse on hustler. And use hustling. It's important we use English properly on this show. But one of the lessons I really learned is a lot of them are actually focused on finding the founders and other people's portfolios who are doing well and basically intercepting those rounds before the portfolio figures out that they're doing well. And so if you're looking at some of these larger funds, um, Sequoia, Andreessen, who have a ton of seed checks out there, they might have 200, 300 companies in the portfolio. So you actually have this opportunity where you can actually hear an intel from your network saying, gee, this company's doing super well, it's growing super fast. Sequoia hasn't even figured it out yet, or, or whoever it may be. That's sort of the theory. And so you can actually intercept that round, beat them to the punch, get on the cap table. And for the founder, sometimes they feel abandoned. Like the, the reality is, is you know, the largest funds don't have the resources to help their smallest companies. That's just the reality of the business. Um, found, you know, Vision Fund has now backed dozens of companies. Um, they aren't spending time with their $1 million checks all that much. They don't have the resources to do so. And so those founders are going, gee, that guy never shows up. You know, my investor doesn't come to the board meetings. They're not very prepared. They never seem to focus on me. Uh, and here's this new investor who wants to join the cap table and do it. And let's just sign the deal before they even realize what's going on. And so, so for some of the hustlers out there, the hustling VCs out there, again, use English properly. We are seeing more and more of these sort of intercepts because exactly as you said, there's so much competition for cap tables today. There's so much competition for the best companies. VCs don't have the luxuries in their gilded castles on Sand Hill anymore to, to just sort of say, well, gee, there's signaling risk. I don't want to take a look at that company. Um, fuck it. Let's just go in and see what's going on. Yeah. And so to summarize that, um, if you are a Sequoia or an Andreessen that writes all these early stage checks to hopefully get a look at what's kind of bubbling up next to make sure you can get on that cap table, sometimes you can write too many checks, lose track of, of your investments, and then a hustling VC, someone who's out there really being scrappy, 
can show up and actually get in front of uh, your portfolio company early. So there's a balance point between doing no early stage rounds and doing all of them. So you have a good amount of signal, but not so much that it becomes noise. And uh, to actually hit that balance would require, I don't know, self-control, but this is venture, so probably not gonna happen. Um, but we should scoot ahead to a, a controversial company that I wanna talk about because uh, our recently departed um, IRL BFF, Kate Clark, wrote about Lambda School for the information. I think it may actually be her first piece for them. I think it is. Yeah, it is her first piece. Uh, so congrats, Kate, uh, for being on the pub over there. We miss you. Um, but like I said, I was gonna read her stuff and it's fantastic as expected. So to summarize, Kate wrote about Lambda School, digging into its growth, its valuation, its fundraising, some issues the school has had around curriculum, um, some student complaints. And, and my read, Danny, about this is that we have Lambda School, about which every single person has a relatively strong opinion, at least in our world, because we've seen the founder and CEO, Austin, bouncing around talking to everybody, either positively or sometimes rudely. And it, it goes to show that there is not one clear answer about what the company is, because the piece highlights investor interest, the possibility of a large new round, the possibility of a large new valuation of a billion dollars. It also highlights student complaints, um, them dropping out of a kind of, uh, I don't know, what do you want to call it, a working with a partner who would verify their, their postgraduate employment data, uh, which makes me feel a little bit yucky inside. And so my read is the company is still kind of a question mark and that there's a lot of growth, a lot of potential, but still some, some bumps. And I'm curious how much further it can scale without one, needing more capital, or two, kind of losing its ability to control its own narrative. But I'm curious, you read it as well. What did you think? I think Lambda is part of this new wave of EdTech. So, I mean, we've been writing about EdTech and particularly income share agreements a lot on Extra Crunch in the last week. Uh, our correspondent, Eric Peckham, has you know been really interested in that topic. And, and, and really, we, we obviously get the analytics data on what gets read, what gets read a lot. And I can tell you, EdTech and income share agreements is a really, really hot topic among investors right now. And so Lambda is just at the center of this, right? So they're getting a ton of inbound. I think there's a ton of interest in going this. There's a ton of um, uh, kind of ambiguity. Like what's actually interesting here is there is a bet going on, which is um, for those who don't really understand the income share agreement model, but you sort of commit, in, in Lambda's case, you commit for two years, uh, I think 17% or roughly 17% of your income for the next two years above 50K if you have above uh, a 50K income. So, you know, for programmers coming out of their boot camp, they might be making 90 or 100K. That's 17K a year capped to 30K max for the two-year cycle. Um, and so what's interesting here is there is a lot of modeling on the financial side here that you normally would not do with an EdTech deal. If you're looking at some of the other companies in the space, Coursera or Udacity or some others, uh, they're mostly uh, pay per degree. You pay a fixed price and you get a degree. Now there's like a financialization that's going on. You have to actually make a bet that the company can actually place these job graduates. They can place them in good jobs. The better they get placed and the more money they're making, the more that Lambda School makes itself. Um, and so there's just a lot more interesting kind of ambiguity for investors to kind of investigate and kind of say, gee, we're willing to bet more or less on that model. Uh, the challenge here is that it is so new, both from the curriculum side as a startup at just figuring out a lot of how to teach. Plus on the uh, economic and financial side, there's no regulations on ISAs a day. Um, there's actually a, a bill in Congress to kind of regulate it more. The Department mm -hmm. of Education has looked at doing it. Uh, but the reality is this is the wild west of education. And so we're seeing, you know, uh, some students are obviously very happy. They're on Twitter. Austin obviously kind of retweets a lot of their, their happy comments, and he certainly does not retweet the unhappy comments. And there no. are people now circulating letters and complaints saying that they didn't get a great education. And now they're locked in, right? So if you don't like the education, you've signed this deal saying that I'm going to give my income up for two years. Part um, of that's your kind income. Of part, of, part of your income for two years. That's a really tough place to be. 
It's a tough place to be, but here's here's the thing that people don't talk about too much, at least that I've seen in the conversations about this. And because I've been on Twitter, I've been drawn into them from time to time. Uh, this model seems to work reasonably well, and I'm going to use that with a lot of caveats and quotation marks around it, but reasonably well when the economy is very good. I'm curious if it'll have the same economics uh, when the economy is not, because today everyone wants to hire developers. There's kind of a, a global slash national crunch uh, for these workers. And so there is um, probably wider on ramps into the industry and, and schools like Lambda are doing a great job of widening the, the opening for folks that didn't get a four-year degree in computer science, et cetera, to kind of come into the space. I'm, I'm great with that. Huzzah. But if the economy falls apart and the labor market gets less competitive, will these, these graduates still be as competitive for roles? And if they're not, will their post-matriculation uh, or post-graduation um, job-getting rates, to butcher English yet again on the show, uh, go down, in which case the economics that underpin Lambda might change, which could then bend the curve of the venture bets been made in the company. $48 million roughly so far of known capital raised by Lambda, and the story says they turned down a hundy. So... A lot of people want to put money into this, but to me, I'm, I'm curious about the macro climate and how much that's boosting the company's results in the short term. I think that's exactly right. And look, at the end of the day, um, you know, Lambda is expanding beyond just tech. So what, one of the interesting initiatives is they're expanding into nursing, which is obviously a very impactful field. Um, millions of Americans are, are getting older uh, with the baby boom generation hitting 65 and hitting Medicare and Medicaid. And so that's another profession that's sort of having the same kind of programming uh, labor economics, where there's a huge demand for talent, but a lack of people who have licenses. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a bunch of these different markets and Lambda is just being very smart and focusing on where the data shows people have need in the economy. Like if you train people for jobs that are, are impacted this way, gee, they get paid better, they're going to do better economically. And ultimately, that's, they would argue, is incentive aligned with the student because yeah, they're I, doing I like a that job. Part. Yeah. Um, on, on the flip side, though, oh, the medical world is a bit more regulated than the computer developer world. And so when they talk about bringing nursing in, I, my, my first thought was yours. Great. There's a nursing shortage here in the country. It's going to get sharper as we get uh, into the next decade, for sure. On the other hand, my spouse is in the medical world, and I know how hard it is to work in that space, especially given the amount of complexity, regulatory oversight, and just paperwork that goes into it. I wonder if the Lambda School model translates to a regulated industry. I don't know the answer to that, but I have a slight little about that. But uh, let's put a pin in this and talk about um, a number of things that happened in the last week involving startups in the media space. Now, we don't talk about media too much on equity because media hasn't really been super venture backable in the last five to seven years. BuzzFeed grew and then kind of plateaued. We saw Mike implode and sell for like $47. Mashable got sold for like $3.50. It's been rough out there. Vice missed its um, revenue targets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, a couple of winners are bubbling up, one of which is The Athletic, which this week raised $50 million at, Danny, I think it was a $500 million, million. Dollar, but, yeah, valuation. Um, rumor, well, not rumor, the Axios, Axios reported that they might be profitable in 2020 and uh, that they are expecting to hit 1 million subscribers relatively soon. And if I recall, it's like 50, 60 bucks a year or a bit more pay per month. So that means they're going to be at an ARR pace of 50, 60, 70 million dollars, which, to be honest, not bad. Uh, not a bad multiple and a very impressive model. Um, I'm bullish on The Athletic, Danny. I don't know. Where's your stance on this, uh, this company and its new deal? I, I'm super bullish. I mean, you know, it's a space, so much of media is trying to find niches. And the reality is, is there are also huge markets like sports journalism, sports media, where, you know, tens of millions of people every day are going to the sports sections of their newspapers or watching or, you know, sports TV, ESPN, they're listening to sports radio. 
Um, this is a huge, huge market, and and I think that they've sort of owned this sort of subscription pay uh, model where it's not just text; it's also podcasts. They have, I think, some videos as well. Um, so it, it's a huge market. What, what's concerning, coming from a, a, a maybe a cynical media background, as always, is like they have now raised 140 million bucks, and the company was only founded four years ago. Yep. Right. So it's it, it's a really new company. Um, they've raised super fast. They raised a Series C of 50 million from Founders Fund and and Bedrock Capital. Um, Jeff Lewis, who was formerly a partner at Founders Fund, is the founder of Bedrock Capital. So there's a little bit of like a nexus there. Um, his partner, Eric Stromberg, um, I believe, led the deal. Um, so, you know, I, I trust that there's like good numbers here. And I think the numbers are going to bear, uh, bear it out. Uh, the reality is, is, you know, we've seen so many of these sorts of stories before. It's not how, you know, Vice is a great example of one that raised hundreds of millions in venture capital over the years. And everyone thought it was doing super well. And then it crashed or it's pretty crashed pretty hard. Um, the difference is maybe is ultimately it's subscription, right? And so there's just so much more alignment with customers. Um, ultimately, the readers are the ones paying. It's similar to what we're doing with Extra Crunch, obviously. And you know, ultimately, if the readers are the ones paying you, it's a much tighter business model than hopefully Facebook is you know, happy with the ad market this week. Um, yeah. And so it's a little bit more durable over time, I would expect. I think it's much more durable. And I was reading up on the uh, the deal and the company, kind of where it is in the market today. And they were discussing how they've really worked on adding uh, UK coverage, to, especially to the Premier League soccer circuit, for lack of a better term. Uh, go Arsenal, by the way. Um, and they said that when they started doing that, they didn't just see growth inside the UK. They actually saw subscribers from countries around the world. And so by, by targeting this uh, one football, if you're not in the States, league, um, really opens the doors to a lot of other countries as, for subscribers, which to me shows that there is an enormous amount of growth to be had, at least another chunk of subscribers to go out and get. So I think this round makes pretty good sense. I don't know if they need another 50 million in a year and a half or whatever it is. Uh, if they can get close to profitability, though, and hit, you know, 2 million subs with this capital investment, they'll be doing well north of 100 million AR and they'll be in great shape for an IPO and long-term viability. And I mean, who would have thought that sports would have yielded a company of this size? Um it's, adding, not, it's not like there's there's not like there's a big game coming up anytime soon that would make you know more than a million dollars in revenue for anyone, right? Um, you mean the game that the Eagles aren't playing in? That's that's the one I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. go Chiefs, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, as a tidbit, this is this isn't in our notes doc, Danny, but I did see that um, there was a story of frick, I forget where it was. It said like Axios and Politico and some other pubs had finally hit profitability for the first time in 2019 on the back of stronger than expected revenue. So. There is some kind of positive tailwinds to media. The Times uh, is hitting some big numbers on its uh, subscription side. So I I'm bullish, I think. I, I think what we've seen, though, is the grind to subscription nirvana that everyone thought was going to be pretty rapid for publications is a longer run. Um, but people like BI and TC, I think we're seeing some good success with it. And it's going to work out. But it it's, you know, the Athletic's going to hit a million. It's a lot more space to go. I think when you look at The Athletic, one of the parts that, you know, we're talking about with Front earlier is that they really found product market fit. You know, the, the lesson to me for media is always if you build a product that people love, just like anything, whether it's consumer, B2B, it doesn't matter. Products that people love are going to be popular. They're going to be successful. And The Athletic's product is amazing. You know, the app is amazing. The experience online is amazing. The experience as a subscriber is amazing. Um, it's not surprising to me that a great product, not only in a big market, but also one that people talk about a lot whether at the you know, sports bar or whatever, um, starts to spread around. I've even heard people you know, way outside of the 2030 demographic saying like, have you subscribed to The Athletic? And these people don't subscribe to anything. So I think it's a, a huge sign of success. And uh, it, it starts right from the beginning with product. 
Yeah. And also, you know, as local media dies, I think a lot of markets have underserved uh, coverage of their local sports teams. And if the athletic can find a way to, to make that accessible again and invest in it, frankly, all the better. The downside is, of course, that, you know, smaller media markets then become paywalled only. And, you know, I think everyone in the world would love it if all information was free all the time. But we're finding out as an industry that it just doesn't work. And so I'm at once in favor of this slightly whims, slightly, uh, slightly wistical. No, slightly. Uh, I'm wistful. That's <laughs> How English work? English is so terrible on this show today. It's not whimsical. I'm wistful. There you go. I'm wistful about the era in which classified ads pay for the whole media business. That's now behind us. We've all moved on. Um, Two more things, though, on the media front that we want to touch on very quickly because we haven't talked about media in ages. Uh, The first is that the company behind Serial, Serial Productions, is exploring a sale. And Danny, if you hadn't known, because we all read the article, that uh, or how many downloads Serial did by itself, the first season of Serial, how many downloads would you have guessed that that hit podcast had done? 30 million. 30 million. And the answer is actually 300 million. So it goes to show, I think, that the, the podcast boom, if you will, uh, hit product market fit and hit the mainstream status, not now, but actually two or three years ago. And that's a thing worth remembering as we, as we kind of enjoy podcasting today and you know, watching the business world kind of get better at it, uh, both in, in, well, in all possible senses. Um, I think that the Spotify would be a great acquirer for this. New York Times is supposed to be a possible acquirer, Danny. Between New York Times and Spotify, where do you think this should land? It, it, it's a unique product, right? Because on one part, um, you know, Spotify wants a lot of recurring content. You know, they have a monthly subscription that's really engaging. People actually listen to hours of Spotify content, and so they need a huge top of the funnel of just audio to kind of catch up. Um, New York Times is interesting because Serial has focused on investigative pieces that are sort of seasonal. You know, each season yep. they do kind of a long, in-depth story, and that that to me feels a little bit more fit with the Times brand than with just the general Spotify kind of library. But nonetheless, I think it'll come down to to price leverage. Uh, my guess is, is that any buyer is going to want to scale up those seasons; and they're going to want to do more of them more frequently. And so, um, ultimately, it comes down to who has the resources to give them. Yep. And uh, keep in mind that as Spotify has more exclusives, it has a higher leverage over price because currently, if it only has music. It's offerings pretty much the same as Apple Music or Amazon Music or whatever. It's just an interface that looks a little bit different. But with exclusives, they then have more of a locked-in audience, which means more pricing uh, leverage, which can drive up gross margins, drive profitability long-term. So this is a way to, outside of the music world, really help Spotify become a healthier company. Um, but I was doing just some looking around uh, Spotify's, I think it was Q3 19 uh, investor data, and their free cash flow is like $50 million a quarter. So they have lots of extra money to play with. Um, they're certainly in, they have like 1.6 billion as well. So they have got tons of money, maybe it's 1.8, whatever. Um, but they're super cash rich. And that's why I was fascinated to hear that they might be buying uh, the ringer, which is actually yet another sports talking kind of media company um, said to be doing, I think like 15 million a year in revenue, certainly super famous. And uh, I thought it looked like a really smart deal. So I, I don't know, Dan, if they bought the ringer, I would give it kind of two thumbs up from a business perspective. I presume you're in the same boat. Absolutely. And, and one thing that the Wall Street Journal noted in that story was that the Spotify actually locked in $400 million of acquisitions in the podcast space. Uh, yep. Three companies, most prominently uh, Gimlet Media, uh, which is a podcast studio and, and network. Um, and, and to me, it just seems exactly what you just said, which is, you know, Spotify needs to differentiate. It wants differentiated content. Um, we saw that with, what was a title that I think is kind of, titles disappeared, right? T-I-D-A-L, the, the Jay-Z backed. Yeah, the, the, yeah, it's the one that had like Lemonade as an exclusive or something like that years ago. Yeah, but ago. Jay-Z's on Spotify now, so I'm presuming it's dead, but it right. was a cool, so it's all it was dead. cool so idea. It's, you know, it, right, so the idea of exclusives and music is always really hard because ultimately, 
the business for the artist in music is distribution, right? You're using Spotify to get as many listeners as possible, and you funnel those into concerts and other kind of forms of media that have higher kind of uh, price points. And so for Spotify, if you really want to differentiate and raise those uh, subscription prices long term, you want to make that cash flow nice and high, uh, you definitely need the exclusives. And The Ringer is one of those few brands, particularly, again, in sports, a popular content area that we haven't seen Spotify kind of engage with as much. Um, it's really one of those few opportunities to get uh, at least a shell um, uh, of a brand that like could really be filled with a lot more content under the under the label. I want to thank Danny for giving us the least romantic explanation of how music works of all time. Spotify is top of the funnel, concerts is bottom of the funnel, and the higher conversion rate between the two, the more effective of an artist as you are, or whatever. I mean, God, dude, you're not wrong, but I just hate that you're right, I guess. This is what capitalism does to culture. Yeah, this brutal. is why you go to the, the, the museum, you pay $35, you, you see 45 paintings, you think of it as $1.25 per painting, um, you want to make sure you have your viewer time for 3 minutes and 50 seconds. Anyway, th th this maybe should be cut for the extra part of the show, um, how I analyze the economics of my museum visit. Danny had a lot of pop before the show, if anyone's curious. Um, anyways, we're going we're gonna to slowly wrap pop, here. Not pot. Yeah, no, I said pot, pot. If I was on pot, it would be one, one painting per hour. And yeah. I'd be thinking about flowers and vases and, and, and saison. Uh, but before we go, ladies and gentlemen, uh, some brief notes we didn't get to today, just didn't have time, but they're cool. Uh, one medical this week put together a price range for its IPO of $14 to $16 per share. They're shooting for a valuation of around $1.75 billion to $2.0 billion. We shall see. Also, we thought the Placer.ai uh, Series A of $12 million. Super interesting. Look that up if you get a chance. Uh, and, oh, there was a cool story in Forbes by Alex Conrad. Quote, this New York startup just raised $25 million to challenge Atlassian. Check out Clubhouse. And we added four new companies to our $100 million ARR club, group, cohort, whatever which was Metro Mile, Tricentis, Cultura, and Diligent. Danny, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, anything else burning in your heart before we go? No, I mean, congratulations to those four companies. They will get the TechCrunch 100 million AOR tote bag in the mail, um, hopefully in the next six to 12 months, as they are uh, manufactured and shipped on a boat from China. Um, to be clear, he's lying. And on that bombshell, it's time to end. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you really soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.